91.7 WVXU is proud to support this and other locally produced podcasts through its podcast network. For an easy-to-navigate curated list of some of the best local and national podcasts, visit Podcast Central at wvxu.org slash podcastcentral. Welcome to The Twelfth Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 182 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors, speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 80,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at www.mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. My name is Tim Guilfoyle, and I'm with Northern Kentucky Fly Fishers. Northern Kentucky Fly Fishers is one of the largest fly fishing clubs in the United States, with members throughout the greater Cincinnati area and beyond. You can learn more about our club at nkff.org. The first Thursday of every month, except November, we meet for dinner, educational clinics, and a program presented by, a fly, by fly fishing experts from far and wide. This month, April 5th, 2018, our speaker is Jim Babb, joining us today in the reading room on the 12th store of the Mercantile Library is Jim Babb. James R. Babb was born and raised a fly fisher in East Tennessee Hills and moved to Maine in 1972, he says, after reading too much Thoreau. He has worked variously as a truck driver, commercial lobster fisherman, newspaper reporter, magazine columnist, and an editor of seafaring and outdoor books for McGraw-Hill, W.W. Norton, and the Lions Press. In 1995, he began writing the angling column for Gray's Sporting Journal and in 1997 became Gray's editor. He retired in 2016, again, according to him, having found that work interferes with fishing. He's the author of four books, and we're here to discuss those today. Welcome to Cincinnati, to Northern Kentucky Fly Fishers, and to the Mercantile Library. Jim, if you'll elaborate on your background, we would appreciate it. Well, you know, I'm your basic East Tennessee hillbilly who found a way to get out. Uh, after I got out of the Navy, I moved to Maine and uh, and found that fly fishing was very much like it had been when I grew up in East Tennessee Hills before all those people from Ohio moved down and ruined it. <laughs> and, uh, and Maine has never quite gotten past its connection with the 18th and 19th century. There are there are outposts of civility there, but we try to keep away from them. Mostly, it's still like it was 150 years ago. So, it's a great place to live, a great place to fish, and it's a great place to write because uh, you pitch a rock into a crowd in Maine, and if you don't hit an artist, you'll hit a writer. So, tell us a little bit about your history as a writer editor, and I know you're you write about fly fishing. But do you consider yourself a writer who fly fishes or a fly fisher who writes? Well, I'm, I'm a writer who fly fishes. Uh, 
when I do book signings, I'm always, I was at first surprised to see that half the people there weren't fishermen, that they had come mistaking me for a nature writer or a philosophical writer or a humorist, and I realized, well, I guess kind of I am all of those things. Uh, the Washington Post figured that out before I did when they did a piece back in the late 90s on uh, on interesting writing taking place outside the mainstream, and they and they picked out a, a little bit I wrote in Gray's Sporting Journal, and I said, you know, that ain't that bad. <laughs> so I kind of I I became a fly fisher fishing writer by accident, and I became something more than a fly fishing writer also by accident. So um, were you a writer first or an editor first? I was an editor first, although you could argue that all writers are produced from readers, and I was a reader by the time I was three and was never seen without a book in my hand. Uh, but uh, when I got out of the Navy, I moved to Boston because in those days you either moved to Boston or to New York or to San Francisco to grow your hair in funny shapes and, and take control of substances and, and uh, develop an attitude. And Boston seemed an intellectual version of, of New York, and it didn't have all those stupid Indian clothes that people in San Francisco seemed to wear. <laughs> so uh, I moved to Boston, and I to find a way to support myself, I, I could type, thanks to the U.S. Navy, and I could understand weird stuff coming through headphones. Also, I was a radioman typing Morse code. So I got a job at Harvard Business School Press, or the larval stage of it, uh, transcribing professors' books by dictaphone. And as I went along, I would make little changes to their leaden professorial prose and, you know, stuff they would have done if they'd have thought about it, and take out their flaccid verbs and all that. And the um, editor-in-chief caught me at it and, and punished me by making me a, uh, an assistant editor. Uh, and so I rewarded her faith in my abilities by moving to Maine and becoming a lobster fisherman. Very good. So I was an editor before I was a writer, uh, which is usually the opposite of the way it's done, but it, it worked out for me because I could see how stupid my stuff was before other people did. So you're, uh, it's been said that you're undoubtedly living the dream of thousands of American men and women. You're not only free to fish the rivers of North and South America, but you're paid to do so. Um, and in, in one of your stories, Home Away From Home, you, you talk about some of this. So elaborate on that. Well, I mean, in the first place, I'm not, I wasn't paid to write about fly fishing. I paid to go fishing. I paid to go fishing. I was paid to write about the fishing. Uh, but it was interesting flying all over the planet, uh, fly fishing and finding where I really wanted to be was back home in Maine. Uh, but I didn't know that until I had gone everywhere else and found how wonderful they were and thought there must be a reason half the, half the country shows up in Maine every summer. <laughs> and now I don't have to leave anymore unless I come out to Cincinnati or, and, and do a reading. <laughs> 
In, uh, in his book, Haunted by Waters, Mark uh, Browning uh, writes about fly fishing in North American literature, and he says, just as fishing as a sport seems to hold remarkable fascination for Americans, it similarly seems to hold a disproportionate place in literature of North America. Melville relates perhaps the finest fishing story of all time in Moby Dick. Twain centers his greatest works on great rivers of, of uh, America. Hemingway returned several times to the subject of fishing. Moving from the traditional canon, one sees an enormous body of, fly fi of, uh, of fishing literature, especially fly fishing literature, from the earliest works in Britain uh, to uh, uh, including uh, Dame Juliana Burns and Isaac Walton, and uh, now in North America. What do you attribute this to? Well, fly fishing makes you think about things because if you're not actually noticing what's going on around you, you might as well not fish because you're certainly not going to catch anything. And it produces a sort of contemplative uh, feeling. You know, long hours might pass where nothing happens, but you watch the water go by. And people don't really seem to have the time to think about things anymore. They lead lifestyles that is not, that doesn't make them prone to reflection. But fly fishing is all reflection, so I'm, I'm not sure whether the fishing creates the writer or if people who are prone to write uh, are drawn to fly fishing. But the two serve as, an, as a nursery. I mean, Isaac Walton, uh, the Complete Angler is the second most reprinted book in the English language after the King James Bible. And so there's got to be something in it, although Walton, to be fair, was a worm drowner and a frog strangler, not a fly fisherman. <laughs> Charles Cotton, who wrote his fly fishing addendum in 1676, I think, was, wrote the fly fishing addendum to that. But, but the philosophy was the same. Um, basically, it's men and women wasting time on the bank of a river in a most productive and entertaining way. So you were both the ang uh, angling columnist and editor of Gray's Sporting Journal. Right. How do you dis uh, distinguish Gray's Sporting Journal from other uh, sporting magazines? Well, Gray's is kind of like Field and Stream meets The New Yorker. It's for fishermen who think as opposed to fishermen who just want to rack them up. Uh, it's for hunters who, who, who see every shell burst and, and, and smell the wintergreen from the yellow birch uh, instead of just shooting everything that moves. It's, it's not a goal-oriented magazine. It's a literary magazine. And Gray's has coughed up a couple of Pulitzer writers over the the years, including Annie Prue and uh, that snow falling on Cedars guy whose name all went, Gustafson was his name. Uh, we produce literature at Gray's. We, we, we publish poetry at Gray's and original art. So it, it's fly fishing and hunting, hunting and fishing for English majors. Although if you look at our demographics, it's also hunting and fishing for English majors who were fortunate in their choice of parents. <laughs> And in, uh, I know you're not the editor any longer, but in, in this digital age, how is Gray's uh, doing? Uh, well, I haven't kept up with it uh, that much, but 
it's not the kind of magazine that digital does has any reality for. I mean, the, uh, you can catch fish more efficiently on a on a high-tech carbon fiber rod than on a handcrafted split-band boot rod, and you, they shoot them just as dead with a Remington 870 from Walmart as you can with a handcrafted Purdy. Uh, so we really don't compete with the low-end digital how-to, and the high-end, I mean, the digital literary seems to me a, con a disconnection in terms. You know, it's like pigs and wings. I, I find that uh, myself. Uh, I would much rather have something in hand, and actually the statistics bear that out. Um, I have uh, my, my daughter and son-in-law in the publishing business, and they say really only about 15% of, uh, of books and magazines and so on and so forth are in fact uh, digital as opposed to in-hand publication. Yeah, I mean, the rumor exceeded its reality. At one time, the, there, the, the digital legions, the people who grew up with a computer in their hands, uh, they like to talk about disruption in a kind of a mantra. And this is going to overturn everything, and nobody's going to read paper books anymore. But in the reality, the tide is, seems to have gone back the other way, and people who enjoy reading enjoy sitting with an actual book in their laps. And I have a Kindle and love my Kindle because I can buy all of Balzac for $1.99 instead of $800 from rare bookstores. You know, you have 40-something uh, novels by Balzac. So, and, and then what am I going to do, carry them around in a steamer trunk? But I've got them all on my Kindle and all of the... All of Jane Austen and all of Thomas Hardy and all of, you know, that's when you travel a lot, that's handy. But when I sit at home, I take the books off the shelf and read them. Well, I'm the same way. That's why I'm a big fan of the Mercantile Library, uh, is because books in hand, and uh, I come here. This is a nice library I've seen of its size, and I have no idea how they managed to shoehorn it into the top of a big building. Well, they've done a marvelous job, yeah. so... Uh, but again, it's, it's one of the things that I like about the Mercantile is that you have books in hand. And if they don't have it, they'll get it for you. So uh, it's, uh, it's quite a uh, resource for the greater Cincinnati area. Let's turn back to your work. In your first book, Cross Currents, uh, A Fly Fisher's Progress, you write of your upbringing in Tennessee. And I think you'd probably correct me to say East Tennessee. East Tennessee. Yeah. Tennessee is, is, includes Middle and West Tennessee, but not East Tennessee. We don't want anything to do with those people. The only thing we share in common is a license plate and a state capital. <laughs> so, so they are allowed to root for the volunteers, uh, or at least they are when we have a coach not named Butch. <laughs> so what is special about East Tennessee as opposed to Middle Tennessee and Western Tennessee, and how did that experience in East Tennessee influence your writing and fishing? Well, in East Tennessee, everybody's a comedian and a serial killer. For <laughs> <laughs> uh, the county next to mine, my father used to say, is the toughest county in Tennessee. And if you, you went up on the courthouse steps and said, I can whoop anybody in town, you'd have so many holes in you that by the time you hit the ground, you wouldn't make a sound like a leaf. <laughs> uh, so how did that influence you, being raised in East Tennessee? 
Well, I didn't know any better. I mean, I, my family moved down to East Tennessee from uh, the Shenandoah Valley after the revolution. Uh, um, my fifth great-grandfather was at Yorktown, and he got a little bit of a land grant, and he, he wasn't going to win the primogeniture sweepstakes to the homestead up in Virginia, so he haired off to what was then the frontier of East Tennessee, and he built the first mill, uh, grist mill up in Greene County, and his his log cabin made out of chestnut uh, sits now on the Greene County uh, Historical Society lawn. Um, so I mean, I'm as rooted in East Tennessee as you can be, I suppose. Uh, and but you don't notice that growing up there. You don't notice it until you go away and turn around and look back where you came from, and it's, and. When I was growing up there, I couldn't wait to get away because it was not what you saw depicted on television. And then when I got away, I couldn't wait to get back uh, until I got home and then said, huh, four killings this week already. I'm going to Maine. <laughs> <laughs> so can you uh, attribute anything else in your upbringing in East Tennessee to your writing ability? Well, I mean, I became a reader because of my mother's kind of Teutonic toilet training techniques. She handed me a book when I was in my toilet training phase and set me on the pot and, and said, now you sit there or you do something. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I transported a love of reading into a love of writing. Uh, Virginia Woolf said that all books are made from other books and if you read enough of them, a book sooner or later starts sweating out of your fingertips. Excellent. Um, in your uh, first book, Cross Currents, I seem to recall at least one 300-word sentence. Yeah, I just wanted to see if I could pull it off and have it make sense. That's, yeah. an, that's an editorial tightrope walk. How, yeah, how, did you, <laughs> how did you get it past uh, the, the, the editor and... and well, the editor was Nick Lyons, and he knew what I, I was doing. Nick Lyons is, like, he's the editor and writer who pretty much invented modern fly fishing writing and publishing. And uh, he knew exactly what I was doing and applauded. Uh, and most of the people don't notice that I did it, and they weren't meant to. But the people who do notice said, whoa. Yeah, that's that was my, that's my Mel, reaction. That's is, damn well Melvillian. <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't about you know the 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 sport of inbreeding in the East Tennessee hills, <laughs> it's that it, it's sort of a in, in a way a stream of consciousness uh, style. Or is that what, what what was your that was? Well, what, I try to write like I talk, and sometimes I don't bother to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> Is that part of your East Tennessee upbringing as well? Well, Tennesseans like to talk. I mean, where I live now in Maine, it, it's the polar opposite of Tennessee. Uh, East Tennesseans are kind of, everything is a wild exaggeration. You know, it's hotter than 400 hells out here. In Maine, you'd say, well, it's quite warm today. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of struck a a balance between the two. I lived in Maine long enough for it to have seeped into my bones, and you know my accent is a kind of a of a melding between the East Tennessee hills and the Maine coast, and 
they think I sound like Hojo Hominy Critz or Jed Clampett, and down in East Tennessee, I sound like Percy Kilbride from the from Ma and Pa Kettle. <laughs> so your your readers, if there are any, in East Tennessee, uh, how, uh, how are you received in that at neck of the woods? Are they offended by no, you? No, they love it. Okay. Uh, the Tennesseans, East Tennesseans' uh, favorite subject to make fun of is themselves. The funniest thing you place you will ever find to be is an East Tennessee funeral. Uh, all of the dearly departed's myriad foibles and and triumphs are, you know, charted out, charted out, and 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 gnawed over and regurgitated and just laughed over. My, I remember standing at my mother's funeral behind two of her friends. Uh, I've been friends for 60 years, and one of them said, well, you never wanted to ca ask Catherine what she thought about something because she'd tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know your brother Walter still lives in East Tennessee, and yeah. so he's not been ostracized because you're uh, related. No, no, he's he, my brother is is the Yoda of, of Southern Appalachian fly fishermen. Uh, when I go for a book signing or something in, in East Tennessee, uh, I'm generally introduced not as the, you know, the writer of four books that have been reviewed in Publishers Weekly and Library Journal and the New York Times, but it's Walter Babb's little brother, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm fine with because when he was a kid, uh, I already knew he was going to be the best fisherman I'd ever meet, and he is pretty much. I mean, uh, on the, on his specialty, which is mountain trout fishing, there's no one who knows more about it or who is better at it. And he was tying flies commercially when he was nine years old. Uh, and now he's a, a cane rod builder, a widely respected cane rod builder who, uh, who's got a year of back orders waiting for time to get to them. How, how do you define East Tennessee? I mean, wh where is it geographically? It's the, it's the valley of the Tennessee River uh, to the eastern part of the state from basically the Cumberland Plateau to the North Carolina border. It's the, it, actually a contiguous state, and, and I think it was at one time a an actual state, the state of Franklin with western North Carolina. So East Tennessee, Western North Carolina is essentially the same place except for a, a boundary. And it's, it's just a bunch of, uh, I mean, they, the, the, the residents were primarily Scotch-Irish, and they gave us such things as um, country music. <laughs> uh, and the whiskey wars of the 18th century. And, uh, and the fiddle. And, and the, and the British will remember them from the Battle of King's Mountain, at least the ones that survived. <laughs> uh, and Davy Crockett. <laughs> and Mountain Trout. Mountain South, yeah. I mean, David Hackett Fisher, the historian, wrote a mar magnificent book called Albion Seed, Four British Folkways in America, which delineates the divisions of America based on where their original settlers came from. And the the Appalachian Spine from maybe northern Pennsylvania down to the extreme north of Alabama uh, has essentially the same characteristics throughout its length. It's pretty much the same 
origins, same national origins, but um, Lowland Scots, uh, north of England, and Ulster Irish, who came in there with their distinctive accents and their distinctive food and their distinctive ways of settling grievances and, uh, and their music in particular. And they founded uh, a, um, their own tribe. And today, you can take a, an immigrant from Laos or Cambodia and stick him down in that environment and one generation later, he talks just like they do, and he thinks just like they do, and he knows how to fry chicken like a decent person in a cast iron skillet. <laughs> and he can make a biscuit. And then there's an, an entire art also of Appalachian flies and fly tying that has evolved, include, which includes Eastern Tennessee. Yeah, I mean, East Tennessee flies evolved in a vacuum. There were, when I was growing up, there were like eight fly fishermen that we knew and practically none that other than them that we'd see. And it became more over the years, but they, they didn't draw on England for their flies. It's the, where I live in Maine and more, more so in New York and Pennsylvania, the flies had their provenance from England and we looked to England uh, for our for our culture, our fly fishing culture. Uh, England, uh, British officers in the revolution stationed in New York City essentially brought fly fishing to America. But in the Southeast, um, they grew up in isolation and developed their own patterns and their own techniques and uh, as one does in a closed environment. I mean, until I was born, there was not a lot of connection with the outside world. The highways were just coming in. The TVA basically brought the world to East Tennessee and, and changed everything. Uh, yeah, that's but, right. The Tennessee Valley Authority did have an enormous impact on oh, that yeah. region. Yeah. Um, in in Cross Currents, uh, you did a, a fine job of asserting that uh, your life as a fishing writer, editor, living in the Maine woods was a perfect choice for you, without also, also uh, making the rest of us not feel like uh, we were fools uh, for not doing the same. This is a balance that uh, very few fishing adventure riders manage to pull off. H how do you do that? Well, I don't know. I suppose it's the way I was raised. <laughs> um, I, being an editor before I really began to write seriously, uh, you learn how to curb writers' baser instincts and what a writer's actual job is, and most of them don't realize this, is communication. If, if the reader doesn't understand what you're saying, it doesn't un matter how fluently you say it. <laughs> You can tart it up with as many flowery adjectives as, as you want, but if you don't make sense, you've wasted the reader's time, and readers don't come back to writers who waste their time. And, and readers, and a lot of writers don't get this either. They don't very much like being told they're dimwits. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, and 
nobody loves a show off. So I just I write my books for my friends to read, and if the people like to in if the people who enjoy reading them uh, pretty much become my friends because I'm writing for them. Why is Maine the perfect choice for you? Well, because it's many parts of it are like uh, the Tennessee I grew up in, but it always kind of drew me when I was a kid. I was, uh, I remember, I think I was about 12, and I was, uh, I'd been reading Field and Stream, and there were these marvelous stories in there by a fellow named Edmund Ware Smith about, he writes stories about the one-eyed poacher of the Maine woods, and I think, wow, I really like this place called Maine. What's it about? So I went, as one does, I went to the library and said, y'all got any books about Maine? And Mrs. Harper said, well, just the one, and she handed me Henry David Thoreau's The Maine Woods, and 12 years old is way too young to be reading Thoreau unsupervised. <laughs> so I kind of had this idea in mind from around the time I was 12 that I might someday go to Maine. And I got to Maine, and I, people kept asking me, you kin to them babs from down to Camden? You kin to them babs from Winslow? And he said, why, Jesus, you look like one. I said, no, no, I'm from East Tennessee. Well, it turns out, after roots, when you get that feeling for, who are my people anyway? I went rooting around for the Bab Family Association and found them in, uh, in Yarmouth, Maine. And I said, well, that's an odd thing, place to leave a Bab Family Association. But it turns out the Babs come, came to Maine in 1640. My 10th great-grandfather was the fishing master, constable, and justice of the peace on Isle of Shoals, Maine in, in the 1640s. And, um, and his father was a uh, cod fisherman off the Maine coast out of Dartmouth, Devon. Uh, and I've got cousins all over Maine that you put them down at, next to you at Thanksgiving dinner and you pass them peas without batting an eyelash. I went to a family reunion out on Isle of Shoals and there was 120 of us in there that looked enough alike to be scary, including <laughs> what would have probably been my 14th cousin, Reggie Babb, who was a net maker, cod net maker in Dartmouth, Devon, and lived within 100 yards of where my 10th great-grandfather and his wife were married in St. Saviors at Dartmouth. Uh, he hadn't moved an inch <laughs> in 14 generations. <laughs> so, in a way, Maine is really East Tennessee, just colder. Yeah, I mean, it was like I came home, and uh, my father always said, you know, we're Scotch-Irish. And he said, we ain't neither, we're English. And I said, well, how do you know? And he'd just look at me. And I don't know. <laughs> but he'd been told that. And, uh, and, you know, as most teenagers are numbering a bucket of thumbs, I never thought to really pay attention to them when they talked about it. So I had to get it secondhand and, uh, in later years. And yeah, I've I like living in Maine because it feels like I've come home. And I like fishing the River Dart in Devonshire because I know that my family's fished it since they were part of the Saxon invasion in 880. So you know, when, you, when you can feel that sense of home in the water you're fishing is 
I don't know, maybe only fly fishermen get the creeps about that, but it sure does a job on me. In uh, River Music, your second book, uh, Fly Fisher's Four Seasons, it's a series of stories arranged by season. What inspired that organization? Vivaldi. <laughs> more. <laughs> Tell us more. Yeah, of course. I, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> I mean, that's how he organized the Four Seasons. So I said, no, no good idea goes unstolen. <laughs> uh, very good. And when were you inspired? Uh, was it listening to Vivaldi, or how, how did this come to you? Well, I mean, I had listened to... I, I grew up in a musical family in a musical town. My father was a bass, famous bass singer in the choir and in, in the choral society, and uh, we had one of the best high school bands in the South. So I grew up understanding classical music and listening to it, and I still listen to it, and I draw a great deal of inspiration from it. Uh, and... You know, you sit there editorializing, well, how am I going to make this collection of columns into a book? You can't just toss them onto the page. They have to have a reason for being there. Uh, and I kind of began to slant my columns seasonally for a while so that they would fold out into this seasonally related book. It seemed like a rational way to... Um, to organize a loose structure of pieces, and I kind of formed it around my tinnitus, uh, because fortunate to my brand of deafness, I hear rushing water in my ears all the time. That's why I spend most of our time together saying, what'd you say? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm hearing water in my running water. I hear basically a trout stream all the time, and in, I suppose if I wasn't a fly fisherman, it, it drive me crazy, almost to the point of buying a $6,000 hearing aid to shut it off. But <laughs> somehow I, I'd miss the river. Uh, in, in, also in river music, uh, you uh, make a connection between life and the sport, and you distinguish your writing from the typical obsessive, self-indulgent sports writing. And I quote, Having acquired the habit for the onset, onset of sentience, Fly fishing is for me an involuntary act of everyday living, like sleeping or eating or watching reruns of The Simpsons. <laughs> Talk to me. Well, I mean, I didn't choose to become a fly fisherman no more than I chose to be born with blue eyes and, well, what used to be blonde hair uh, back up there that, where there used to be hair. My father was a fly fisherman of the lunatic fringe variety, and so if my brother and I wanted a father, we had to have a fly fisherman as a father, and we had to go fly fishing. So I don't ever remember learning to fly fish, it, no more than I remember learning to walk. Uh, I remember being out in the backyard when I, we had, both of us, my brother and I had hand-me-down nine-foot cane rods of the Montague and Mount Tom variety. They used to be able to buy them for a hardware store for a dollar and a quarter. And uh, level silk lines and old heavy skeleton reels, and we'd be out in the backyard learning to fly cast when we were two or three. So I, I, I don't know what a world without fly fishing would be. So I didn't choose to become a fly fisherman, but I've always been one, and have no idea how to function in a world without doing it. When I was living in Boston, I used to uh, I used to look at 
look for holding water after a rainstorm in the gutters. <laughs> you say, well, it be, might be a fish behind that dead wino. <laughs> Your story sounds reminiscent of uh, Norman McLean. Did you know uh, him? No, I never met him. I think he had, I think he died before, um, not long after he published A River Run Through. Is that not right? Uh, that's true. Yeah, that's so, true. no, I was, at that time, I was still driving a lobster truck yeah. and writing a, I wrote a column for a Maine Sportsman newspaper and also Maine Commercial Fisheries News and Maine Coastal News. I would, I was driving a lobster truck and I had a, a typewriter in the sleeper and I'd write my uh, my columns for these magazine book reviews and stuff like that when I was supposed to be off the clock and sleeping. Well, the story of those two brothers sounds very similar to your the story of you and your brother. Is it? Yeah, pretty much, except for the drinking and card playing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we didn't drink and card play. It was... Uh, you know, nor the, the the story of River Runs Through It and the one in the movie is slightly expanded to include another story McLean wrote, but there was a lot of tension between the two brothers because they had such different paths yeah. to take through life. And my brother and I had very different paths to take as well, but uh, they didn't diverge in such violently dramatic ways. Walter just went fishing and didn't do anything else, and I went off into the greater world and 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 pecked around other careers, uh, but always fished. And, and you're both still around to tell about it. So yeah, and both still fishing and both still earning our living from fishing. So to that right. that might be the one thing my father would have been really proud of if we he knew that we were both learning our living from fishing. The uh, also in uh, river music, uh, you kind of muse that uh, due to the sport's anal and passive aggressive nature, it's small wonder that the invasion of Normandy, one of the best planned and most devious military assaults of all time, was masterminded by a fly fisherman. Elaborate on that, Dwight Eisenhower. He was a fly fisherman, yeah. I didn't know that. He used to go fly fishing all the time up at Camp David. And uh, his son David, or was it his son David or his grandson? I mean, these things kind of run together over the years. He wasn't a fly fisherman, but he grew, but he grew up at it. And uh, uh, I remember uh, Eisenhower went to Little Boys Falls on the Andersco Little Andersargon River, on the Mount McGalloway River, up in Maine, and uh, and caught a fish that was famously photographed. And uh, a friend of mine and I went up there some years ago and caught another. Really nice brook trout right at the same spot. Uh, and there's a little plaque on the rock that said, Dwight D. Eisenhower caught him a fish right here. I did not know that. Yeah, that's, that's well, incredible. but I mean, you think about the logistics of fly fishing. I mean, we go to the field with enough equipment to invade Poland. <laughs> there's <true. laughs> everything you could ever imagine. There's every fly for every hatch you will never see in your entire life. My father used four flies basically his whole life, and he he didn't catch any fewer fish than we did with our science and our and our books. And he, he fished a, a, a Appalachian old Appalachian wet fly called a speck uh, that was made of uh, clipped deer hair and uh, hen hackle, and it just looked like a it, like 
nothing really until we studied entomology and realized it looked like an emerging caddis. Uh, and uh, when my brother got really good at fly tying, he bought some expensive hackles and he tied daddy some, uh, some just exquisite Catskill dry flies and, and, for, and gave them to him for his birthday. And uh, daddy took them out fishing and Walter said, how'd you do with those Catskill dry flies? And he said, well, next time don't tie them with so much hackle, I had to put three split shot on them and get them to sink. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're right. Not only do we go out with uh, 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 every possible fly known to man, but the tools and the, the, oh. the, uh, the clothing well, a, and the vats. And there's the, a multi-billion dollar industry uh, to feed our anal retentiveness. I mean, all the little jujaws. How many kinds of... I cut my leaders with a pair of toenail clippers from Walmart, but... It is the most gadget-oriented sport. If you're <laughs> doing it right, you can spend $30 on a pair of clippers that are officially machined from aircraft-grade aluminum. Well, I'm pretty sure the trout don't care that your clippers are machined from aircraft-grade aluminum. And, the, and the, the leader part's pretty much the same. Also in uh, River Music, you, you talk about the joys and miseries of camping. You do a, a, a tremendous job of <laughs> taking that apart. You still camp? Yeah, uh, not as much as I used to. Uh, you know, when I was writing the angling column for Grace, I was fishing 16 weeks a year a lot of times, and and usually some fairly exotic places and often in a tent. Um, and every year my friends and I go to the same spot on the West Branch of Penobscot and we tent camp. But some of us are, are going through knee replacements and shoulder replacements and, and the general indignities of becoming within a rounding error of 70. And... Uh, and this year we're renting a cabin. Uh, we're not. Ten of course, it could have something to do with last year. There was eight inches of rain in four hours, and we did find that some brands of air mattresses float better than others <laughs> in your tent. <laughs> some of them are very absorbent. But uh, we're staying at the same campground we've stayed at since the '80s. But we'll be renting a cabin this year. Let's talk about your writing process. What do you do? Starts with a little notebook, and as I as I fish, I go on a fishing trip uh, with the specific idea of writing a piece about it. Everything that I see of interest goes into that little notebook, and when I come back to my computer. Um, it begins to expand and take shape. And then I start to, well, what, what does this remind me about? And I'm, I'm reading a, 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 seeing a, a, seeing a scene oh, up in the British Columbia mountains. And I'm thinking, well, what is, what is it that this lies underneath this? And I start hearing the Hall of the Mountain King uh, or something like that. And I go looking for quotations that kind of spur my my, my memory, and I go off and research tangents uh, to study the history of this place I'm trying to write about and, and to 
older people who what happened here 100 years ago or 3,000 years ago and what happened here in literature and some of that stuff will never appear in the piece but the but the underlying foundation of it will somehow slide in there and every morning I get up at four o'clock and hit the computer and rewrite everything I wrote the day before uh, in a way that I wish I had done before, but you know, nobody, everybody's first draft is terrible. Just ask Hemingway. Uh, and I keep rewriting it and rewriting it and knocking off the rough spots and filling in the low spots until it, until it makes sense. And then I go hide it in a drawer somewhere for a month and haul it out and see if it still makes sense. And often it does, and sometimes it doesn't. And and I rework it again. So it's, it's a kind of a lapidary polishing of, uh, and a continual kind of tectonic movement of, uh, of first impressions captured in a notebook. So at a time, any time, how many stories do you have in the works? Uh, when I was doing the angling column, I might have eight or ten in different stages of completion. Uh, some of them never went anywhere. Some of them didn't make any sense. I'd go off on a great trip where everything happened perfectly and, and, and there were no rough edges and it was about as interesting as watching paint dry. And you know, Good stories come from bad trips, not from good trips. <laughs> so let's talk about what's coming next. What's your next major project? Well, having become a successful fly fishing writer, just in the same vein that I was a successful editor and decided to turn myself into a lobster fisherman, I, I'm trying to sabotage my career by becoming a novelist, as one does. And so you're actively working on a novel. Then. Yeah, I've been, basically I've been staring in a hole in my backyard for 40 years, wondering what to do with it, you know, wondering who dug that hole, and, and I, I knew it was a well, uh, because it had it fallen in, some of the stones that lined it uh, were um, were clear, so it's clear, and the water level come up. And but I didn't know who dug it. If you go back in the, all the town tax maps, there are no roads near my backyard, and there's always a trail or a road that would go by someone's house. There are old abandoned houses all through the main woods, but this one had no connection with the road. And, and the, the old cellar hole had no stone foundation. I said, well, since this predates the maps, which date to the 1790s, it's pretty old. And where I live at one time was France. In 1608, Champlain was there. Um, so I just got to wondering who dug that hole and has spent the past 40 years trying to figure out who, and since I couldn't figure it out, well, you just make it up. <laughs> so I'm in trying to find out who dug that hole, I'm tr trying to find out uh, what life was like in frontier Maine in period between 1800 and 1815, when it, we were just recovering from the revolution and all the Revolutionary War veterans were moving into the coast of Maine thinking they had 100 acres of land and, uh, and, and go from there. And then uh, the, the state was resettled uh, by, by Britain in 1815 uh, when they reconquered us in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the War of 1812. And so, but nobody writes about that, so it, I, I took up the job. 
Well, very good. Well, Jim, uh, I want to thank you for uh, coming to Northern Kentucky and Cincinnati uh, and being with us here at the Mercantile Library and also being with us at uh, Northern Kentucky Fly Fishers. And remember, you can learn more about Northern Kentucky Fly Fishers at nkff.org. I did want to tell everyone that Jim has donated his most recent book, Fishing or Fish Won't Let Me Sleep, to the Mercantile, and it can be, uh, uh, you can find it here at the Mercantile Library starting today. I want to thank you for joining us today on The 12th Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on the iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. And if you'd like to listen, tell your friends or tweet us at Mercantile Lib. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, again, Jim Babb, and my name is Tim Guilfoyle. The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDymart. Don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantilelibrary.com, where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week.